0: Well, uh, we're gonna go over a little bit of what we talked about the last time. It's been a couple weeks, so maybe you've forgotten most of it or all of it, I don't know. But we're gonna touch on a little bit of this and then uh, we'll get on with today, a continuation of the the subject matter, which is the one and only cure-all. The one and only cure-all. Last time I shared with you some of the major problems that we're experiencing in our world, it's not just been recent days, but it's been throughout our history of our world, pretty much. But we've had a lot of things that have happened. Well, we talked about terrorist groups that target innocent people in order to uh, try to force their will upon the rest of the world. And uh, in the news today, there's the the Hamas deal over in Israel. It's a terrorist group, and they're trying to force their will on other people. Uh, we we see that. It's not isolated cases. It happens far too often that you have a handful of people that are trying to enforce their will upon other people by the use of force. Uh, Innocent people most of the time are right in the middle of all of it, and they're the ones that suffer the most. Uh, But we've seen this uh, throughout history. Uh, We've talked about the nuclear arms race that uh, began with the United States and Germany back in the 1940s, and then that has expanded in recent times to... Uh, Russia joining, and then over the years, it's also been joined by the the countries of the United Kingdom, China, France, Israel, India, Pakistan, and Korea. So there's a lot of people, a lot of major players in the war uh, that are a part of this nuclear arms race. Um, And I don't know if you're aware of it, but uh, over a 50-year span that began in 1945, there has been an average of a nuclear detonation every nine days over a course of 50 years, a nuclear detonation every nine days. That amounts to 2,025 nuclear detonations since that has been created. They've exploded them in the air, they've exploded them in the oceans, they've exploded them underground. We are are surrounded by radiation. That's a problem. That's a problem. And that problem continues because you get the wrong people getting a hold of that kind of power and the destruction that can be the result of that can create a catastrophe for all of us. That's a problem. We've got that ever-recurring specter of genocide, one race that's been upon the destruction of another. It's been experienced... All around our world, it was experienced in in Australia, Mexico, Peru, here in the United States. It's happened in Europe and Iraq and Africa, Indonesia. It's it's a worldwide problem. It's not isolated to one or two places. It's around the world. It's everywhere. Where one race of people feels superior to another race and they want to annihilate them. We have economic instability, it's being experienced all over the globe, and it appears that the world could be moving toward a place of economic crisis that can bring the whole world to a place of of being on its knees. We have the plague of famine, and that always remains a a possibility upon the earth. Uh, The African countries seem to be in constant distress from civil unrest that's uh, caused uh, the very issue of famine for them. And then we... Have the problem of civil unrest itself because it's become an ever-increasing issue in our world we we've seen it here in america it's happened in uh in ireland it's happened in europe it's happened in asia in indochina and in china itself it's happened in the middle east central america south america It's happened all over the world civil unrest people getting fed up with government people getting fed up with leaders who are not solving the problems and the methods that these world leaders have chosen to use to address these major crisis uh, issues seeing, uh, that are plaguing our world today, one of their main ones is just to throw money at the problem, and they think you throw enough money at it, eventually it'll go away. One, uh, another uh, thing that they use is education. They want to educate everybody and get everybody uh, educated. They want to educate them in politics. They want to educate them in the earth sciences, educate them in, in the better methods of industrial development, educate them in all these different areas, and thinking that in giving them the education, that's going to solve all the problems. Well, how has it done so far for us? I can't tell it it's solved anything. In some cases, it's created more problems than it's solved. They've said that overcrowding is making us crazy and that we need to begin to drastically reduce the growth rate of our population. And, and so they've, they've insti- instituted uh, the, the process of abortion and also euthanasia. Stop babies from being born and kill the old. That's going to take care of our problem. I want to tell you something, people. You could, you could get the population down to three people and you're still going to have problems. you're still going to have three people that can't get along. You're still going to have three people who are going to have disagreements. You're still going to have problems. Population is not the problem. And cutting out the population is not going to solve the problem. God wants us to know. He wants our world to know that he's already developed the perfect solution for the troubled world that we're living in. That solution is for his church to begin a truly concerted effort to expand his kingdom, the kingdom of God, this one world government of God that our world needs, the kingdom of God to rule this world. And folks, i got to tell you that there is no downside to that solution. If God were allowed to be in control of our world today that would solve every problem. Every problem. And I can say that because the supreme law that would govern us all would be the law of love. And we know that's the case because the Bible tells us that that's who God is. God is love. He doesn't just love us he is love love isn't what he does love is who he is and his government would be a government based on love tell me the downside to that what's what's the bad side of that I, I, I can't figure it out I don't know what it is There is none. There's no downside. And I want to try to explain to us uh, the love that I'm talking about here because it may not be the kind of love that we're familiar with. And and so the remainder of this study that we're going to be embarking on today is going to be dedicated to leading us toward a better understanding of what that law of love might look like that God would impose upon us. And to do that, we need to start out by first of all looking at what love has come to mean to us in a general sense. Because if we don't really have a good understanding of what love really is, then we're going to misunderstand what the government of God would be if it's a law of love. I don't know how many of you here, some of you may be too young to know this, I don't know. But uh, there was a song called What the World Needs Now is Love. And it was written by Burt Bacharach and oh, Hal David. The chorus to the song says, What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. truer words were never spoken. And those words were simple, but they are profound because that is the truth. What our world needs today is love, sweet love. It is what there just is too little of. And our problems are created because of that very situation. That one simple ingredient, when it's put into the batter of life, causes the mundane and the ho-hum to become the recipe that changes our life into the phenomenal. Love can do that. What I want to do right now is is to try to qualify that common, and that's because within the construct of our language here in our present day, that word love can come to have several meanings to us. Love can mean a lot of things. Sometimes when the word love is applied in a statement, uh, we might make it uh, to be used within the framework of describing a truly pleasurable experience. Such as, wow, that flavor is amazing. I love that steak. I've said that. Or we might say, man, that tastes incredibly delicious. It's divine. I love this chocolate cake. I've said that. It's not just our food that we get serious about, is it? I get serious about it. The pastor and me, we like steak. I like a good steak. And hopefully we're going to be having some in about another week here. <laughs> over a hot fire. <laughs> It'll taste pretty good, too. And we may even love it. I don't know. But it's not just our food that we get serious about. There, there are other pleasurable things that uh, we're able to and joy that can evoke that same response in us. Maybe it's just kicking back with the guys and and uh, watching a football game or a soccer game or a baseball game or something. We, we love that time of being together with the guys. We love it. Or maybe we love it when we can just get away and go uh, sit beside a stream and, and drown some worms. We're going to be doing that too. And I love that. I've used that term for that. I love it. Or maybe we love it when we get to witness uh, some incredible scenery of of nature and and it just moves us to the point, man, I love this. And I've said that. Because it connects with us in a special way. There's just something special about springtime or summertime or winter or fall. You, You choose. Now, I love fall. And I've said that. A lot of times, because I love this time of year. How many of you realize that the things that women love usually are different than the things that men love? They don't get as excited about some of the things that we get excited about, and we don't get excited about some of the things that they get excited about. It's different. Men like shopping at places like Bass Pro and Cabela's and Home Depot and Lowe's and all those kind of great places where there's tools and sporting goods equipment. We like that stuff. And sometimes, I'm not saying that women don't enjoy it because I've seen a lot of women shopping at Cabela's and shopping at Bass Pro, but they go there for different reasons than the guys go there. They're not shopping in the same areas that the guys are shopping in. Most of the time, the women are in their group, in their women's section. And the guys are everywhere else because we don't enjoy necessarily the same things, and that's okay. The ladies might be more interested in looking at items that are connected to decorating and improving the uh, ambiance of some room in their house or something. Ladies tend to enjoy the special dates with their significant other. They enjoy social events that require them to uh, spend some time on selecting the right ensemble for this particular event that they're going to be attending. And then they enjoy asking their significant other, are you really planning on wearing that? I'm not going out with you like that. You go in there and change. Because you've got to look right. It, ma- it It doesn't matter to us guys, right? To women, it matters. it matters. All I'm saying is that men and women are affected differently as far as the area of what is really able to connect with them in such a way that it can evoke that term of their loving whatever it is that they're encountering. But in all honesty, every one of us can experience the same event, and yet some are going to have greatly enjoyed or loved this particular experience while others have remained more or less unaffected or maybe they even hated it. Because we're, we're all different. We all look at things differently. Now I'm going to share something with you here that's probably going to be, uh, when my wife hears about it, it's going to be incriminating to me. But there is a musical that's been around for decades and it's called The Phantom of the Opera. She loves The Phantom of the Opera. She does. She loves it. She'll tell you she loves it. And she's proven it. She loves it. She has tried to get me countless times to go with her when it comes to St. Louis. And for me to go with her and sit and watch The Phantom of the Now i got to tell you, in all honesty, I have tried my best to tolerate it. I don't like it. I definitely don't love it, but I don't like it and I can barely tolerate it. I don't actually say, I can't say I hate it, but it's pretty close to that. It does nothing for me. To me, it's a snooze fest. You can turn it on and I'll go to sleep because it it has no attraction to me whatsoever. And she loves it. Two people that love each other and yet have totally different concepts of something that one loves the other, just whatever. We overuse the word love, don't we? Probably the better choice would be that we would really enjoy this. I really enjoy that. And yet we substitute the word love for it. There are so many things that we experience that uh, tickle our emotions or they have an impact upon our feelings. And we choose to use the word love when those things happen in our lives. And there is another area where we use the term love to express how we're feeling. And in this case, it's when we express how someone else has managed to connect with us on a special level so that we begin to have this special connection with them and we can even begin to say that we love them. And that brings love to a different level. These relationships can take on many forms. There can be that parent-child relationship in which the parent loves the child and the child loves the parent. Or do they? Because sometimes what they're doing doesn't make us feel very loved, does it? And sometimes what parents do to kids doesn't make the kid feel like they're very loved either. But there's also this connection uh, that goes on the relationship between grandchildren and grandparents, the relationship between good friends, a relationship uh, that's involved in, in the dating format where there's a prospect of marriage on the horizon. In each of these types of relationships, it could be stated that love might be experienced between these parties who might be involved within any of these types of bonds. Love. And we're able to recognize that the love that could exist between these parties is on a much higher level than that which we mentioned a bit earlier. That love that is uh, actually better stated as a form of something that was really enjoyed. So it's a higher level. It's a higher level. And in these special relationships, it might be that that we love being around one another. We love being connected to this other person or these other people because of the fact that we can let our guard down and just be ourselves. We don't want to share who we really are with a stranger because we don't know them. So a lot of times, it's just surface-level conversation that we'll engage in. And we're not going to reveal a whole lot about ourselves because we don't know how they're going to respond to that. We don't know how they're going to take it. But when we get to know somebody and we really connect with somebody and we really begin to grow together with that individual or those people that are in our group, we get to a place where we feel like, I can let my guard down. I can really let them see who I am and not be afraid of that. And that creates a special bond, a special connection. And in that situation, as we feel comfortable in these relationships, we can actually grow in our feelings to where we feel a love toward them, a love toward them. We can feel free to tell them anything without it creating a worry within us that they will use that information to embarrass us or that they're going to use it to hurt us, or that they're going to use it to judge us. We trust them. That's a whole new level. That's a whole new level. We trust them because love is present, and that is the thing that bonds us together. So we can begin to see that the word love uh, has become expanded in its coverage for interpretation, and the range has become quite broad in its scope. It's a wide, wide range. We can say that it's become watered down to a point that it's so diluted we've managed to reduce it into becoming a byword. And a byword is just a word that we use without thinking much about it. We don't attach much significance to it. It's just that... uh, It's just a word that we throw out there. And in this case... It should be a word that has a great deal of weight to it, a great deal of significance to it. But because it has become so diluted, we can use it in trivial terms, to mean trivial things. Or we can have it mean something very powerful. So it's, we can throw it out. So love has become to mean a lot of things, a lot of things. Well, having said that, I believe that one of the greatest injustices that has been uh, perpetrated against the defining of love and what it's supposed to be to us uh, has come from the opinion of human beings who are flawed in that area of expertise. Because, you see, you and I really don't know what love really is until we know God. we are flawed in our interpretation of love. To us it means a lot of different things and a lot of watered down things, but it is so much more precious and so much more powerful than that. And we cannot allow that to be our distinction in love. That it can be all this other stuff when in fact it's something so much greater. The greatest level of love that should exist among men and women uh, who desire to form a lasting relationship with one another is a form of love of that highest level that we have to offer. But once again, when we leave it to the sin-saturated and the polluted thinking uh, that to help us uh, contaminate what should be this amazing and incredible experience of forming a soulful connection between two individuals that have... Uh, that feel this bonding together and uh, begin to look to one another as becoming that soulmate, that special individual that you want to spend your life with. Uh, what I'm talking about here is that, uh, is, is kind of explained by uh, a song that was performed by Stephen Steele and was titled, Love the One You're With. And again, that's an old song. Love the One You're With. The chorus of that song says... It repeats, if you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. Not so profound. The song's about someone who's unable to be with the person that they love. And because of that has created this down-in-the-dumps feeling on the part of this person. And and if you've been in that situation where you love somebody and you can't be around them, it does. It kind of creates this funk that you get stuck in because you want to be with them. Well, this song goes on to say, well, if you can't be with them in this condition, then go find somebody else and go love them. That's the answer, right? Shuck them and go get somebody else. That's the approach. Now, you got to remember, this is coming from the 70s. This is that crazy time of revolution by the youth a sexual revolution uh, that took place in the past where the taboos were being discarded and replaced by very loose morality. So the song, uh, like the sexually charged society, equated this new liberality of sexual experimentation with experiencing love. Love was devalued to become associated with nothing but sex. (coughs) In fact, the revolution was so powerful that it still has its influence in our society today. Because today there's an attachment of the label making love or love making to to doing nothing but having sex. Yet we call it making love or love making. We equate that process with love. I'm not talking about people having sex in a committed relationship. I'm talking about people having casual sex. That's what I'm talking about. Two people meeting up at some social event and after talking to one another for a, lot, for a while, they feel like there's a little bit of connection going on. They go somewhere and make love. They're not making love, they're just having sex. But to them, it's become equated with love. It devalues love, folks, I'm telling you. It devalues it. It's just a one-time thing, no strings attached. There's no love involved in this. Although that's what it was labeled. So what's the big problem with that? This is how I see the problem. From the very beginning, God brought a man and woman together... Adam and his wife Eve. And I want to read to us here real quickly. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. Genesis chapter 2. If I can find it here. Wrong one. I'll get it here in a second. Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, it says, And Adam said, and this is, he's talking about this creature that God has just created for him. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, verse 24 says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We are shown the closeness of the connection that there existed from the beginning that God intended for there to be for us today. A connection of such closeness that there is a feeling that you don't know where one leaves off and the other begins because they're so closely connected, they're so closely knit together that They're they're a symbiotic life form. They they are together. You can't separate one from the other. They belong together. That closeness. And that bond was related to the reason that God had made Eve for Adam, as stated in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 18. God had done that for the purpose, and and the, the Bible tells us, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make an helper comparable to him or to complete him. God made Adam a partner, comparable to help him in life. And the two of them together can accomplish anything when they're together in that bond of love. God had ended, verse 24, with the stated purpose that they would become so close that their relationship would unite them in their hearts so that they would become as one. They would share, each one of them, a mutual respect and devotion for one another. And within the framework of that relationship, that sexual union of the husband and wife would become so powerful and precious that it would deeply fulfill them. That's the intended form, a format that God has instituted for us, and yet we have relegated that to something far less than what it should have been, far less. Instead of that being the reality that society of our day has embraced, we find that it's endorsed this uh, casual sex among uncommitted individuals, and they turn what was intended for by God to be shared between two souls who devoted themselves to one another into something that might be temporary, temporarily pleasurable but otherwise meaningless or at least trivial. This brand of love that is sung about, this brand of love that our society endorses is really a selfish brand of love. If you can even call it Love. I think it might be more to do with lust or just infatuation rather than love. It's selfish when it's approached with an attitude of what's in it for me in this relationship. That's selfish. Relationships that are based on that premise fall far short of what God desires for us to be able to experience in our world. We're able to witness this type of of relationship being experienced by so many in our sphere of living each day, it seems. We all know these situations. It's that as long as the one in your relationship can produce some goosebumps and some flip flops in you, then you want them in your life. But what happens in life is that life pounds the daylights out of you. How many of you know that? Life can suck the life out of you. And what happens is you're not always going to feel the flip flops and the goosebumps because life will beat it out of you. And so when those relationships cease beginning to produce those good feelings inside of you, that can only mean one thing, right? That you've fallen out of love. Well, I'm not feeling it anymore. You're not making me happy. You're not doing stuff that makes me feel fulfilled. So I guess I don't love you anymore. You ain't doing it for me, sister. I don't feel like I did the first time we met. And you said all the right things and did all the right things. It ain't happening anymore. That happens every day. And it does so because that degree of this so-called love depends upon our feelings and the way that our emotions are being affected at any given time. So to me, that level or degree of love is what I would label a wimpy, spineless, uh, and as long as things are going good kind of affection because it's not worth being called love. It's not even close to being uh, fit to be in the same room with love. It's a travesty when Christianity as a representative of God to our world is unable to demonstrate to them the true, genuine article of what love is supposed to be. I'm going to tell you something, people. Everybody that calls themselves a Christian is not a Christian. You can call yourself anything you want to be, but if you don't have the goods to back it up, I don't care what you call yourself, that's not who you are. If you're a Christian, you are going to love like Christ. That's what it means. Christianity is Christ-like. Christ-loved in measures that are so far beyond the scope of what we have come to calibrate as love. We're going to talk about that probably in our next session, but not, not today, but there is a bigger love, there's a greater love, let me just say that, than the the love that we know and operate in amongst ourselves. The great problem with with the love that our society offers is that it's a because of kind of love. It's some feel-good experience that goes on inside of us because of something. I can say that I love you and I can believe it, Because of the things you say to me, or because of what you do for me, or because of the way you make me feel. That's why I love you, because of. But it's precisely these less than stellar attributes that make up what we have come to believe constitutes love. But love like that is selfish. Is because of love. And yet we've constituted love as being something that's selfish. Whenever we attach something as important as the principle of love to the way that we feel and the way that we are emotionally connected within the area of our relationship with one another, it cannot help but become a very unstable proposition for us. I say that because we all know how easy it is for our feelings and our emotions to be induced to changing. We can have a really good day and something happens toward the end of the day that can change that good day and then it becomes a bad day. Why? Because something changed our emotions. Something changed us in our feelings. Our emotions and our feelings cannot be... uh, You cannot judge anything by that, because they change all the time. Things change it, they affect it. They can change quickly. So if our understanding about the makeup of love is centered around how we are made to feel about someone based upon how they make us feel, or how how they affect our emotions, those things can change quickly. That means that if our feelings and emotions are are determining how we regard one another in our relationship, then we can indeed fall in love with them, but we can also fall out of love with them because they can change. That's the danger when we incorporate this brand of love for building relationships because one minute two people can be really connecting with one another. They can be experiencing such a a powerfully emotional uh, surging uh, from being just in one another's company and it it just so moves us that that we blurt out the words, I love you. Because they're really doing something for us. They're making us feel really good. But that same couple only a few minutes later might also become disconnected from one another due to feelings that resulted from something that one of them said or one of them did. Thus creating the outburst, I can't believe you just said that. I hate you, you creep. Two minutes before they were in love, now they hate them. That has happened, by the way. (laughs) But that's what happens when you base love on emotions and feelings. One minute, it's good. The next minute, I don't even want to be around you anymore. Get out of my sight. That can create problems (laughs) in a relationship. This is perhaps one of the most common forms of of a love relationship that can be found operating within our society today. And the sad truth is that it's the least fulfilling of any of the relationships that we could experience. It is not fulfilling. It's also what's repeatedly been shown to us in movies or written about in, in stories. We can see it being lived out in the lives of people that we know, and I fear it's becoming more and more prevalent in our society. And although it seems as though we're bombarded with this idea of selfishness because of love as the way in which we are doomed to experience companionship in life, that doesn't mean that we don't dream of finding a better way to build a meaningful relationship, because I think all of us want that. I don't think there's anybody here that doesn't want to have a meaningful relationship. I really believe that we do, in our heart, want to have meaningful relationships with others. How many tales have been recorded about two lovelorn souls being kept apart by powers beyond their control, but then by some mystical or magical means they are at last united together because of their great love for one another, and they lived happily ever after? How many of you like stories like that? Where people get together and they live happily ever after. That's the dream, isn't it? It really is, I'm serious. That's what we all hope for. I mean, it's maybe pie in the sky, but that's what we hope for. That's the standard that we've set for it. That's what we're looking to find. You won't find it with that kind of relationship, folks, when it's selfish You're not going to find it in that. It will not exist. It's not going to happen. For most of us, I believe that deep inside of us, we all crave that kind of of deep connection. We want that. We want that. I'm going to have to hurry on here. I want us to consider this other form of love, this love that exists upon the higher plane than that which is uh, emotionally fed. This is a form of love that's based not primarily on how someone else is able to make us feel, but this particular form of love incorporates one will, one's willingness to remain committed to that special someone whom we're wanting to build this lasting relationship with. This love's not selfish, and because of that, it's not going to prove to be so much, it will prove to be so much more steady and stable uh, as it becomes that glue that can keep that relationship from coming apart. That's because this degree of love assists the relationship in becoming other-minded. Not selfish, other-minded. Meaning that it's constructed upon each party in the relationship, focusing their attention upon the welfare and the well-being of others Instead of oneself, that's not easy to do. There's a little bit of selfishness, folks, in all of us. Some of us more than others. And you can't help it because that's what sin does to you it makes you selfish. But the real enjoyable form of love is not a selfish love. It's a love that minds others. It cares about others. And it seeks the welfare of others. The welfare of others. Uh, In the the Word of God, there's a couple of different words that are used for love. And one of the lesser forms of love is called filial love. And that would be based uh, in a situation like this, where it's love that is other minded. Filial love is a, is a relationship where you, you think high, more highly of others. You're more concerned about others' welfare than you are your own. That's a filial kind of love. Now, I'm not saying that this kind of relationship can't begin as a result of how one, someone else is able to make you feel, because it can. The only thing is, you got to understand that their relationship's got to grow into this higher level of other-mindedness. Because if it doesn't, it's doomed to fail. If we can't get past selfishness, it's, it's not going to last, folks. I'm sorry, but it won't. At a wedding ceremony, during the exchanging of vows, there are some extremely powerful as well as sobering words that are spoken between the two parties who are being joined together in this uh, special relationship that's called marriage. Each of the ones who are coming together to be married are required to express their intentions toward one another on this special occasion. Each is asked if they are willing to make the vow or the promise that he or she will love and honor one another and that they will remain committed to one another for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in the midst of both sickness and health, and that each will remain faithful by forsaking any and all others who might desire to have this same relationship with either of them once they have made these vows to one another. They are committed to one another and nobody else. They are vowing themselves to that commitment to one another. And that means nobody else can enter the same relationship with them. That's it. This is a lifetime commitment that's meant to endure until the time comes when death steps in to separate them. That means that this special union being created by the means of this ceremony and the company of, of witnesses, isn't to be engaged in with either parties thinking in their minds that if this doesn't work out, we'll just end it and go our separate ways. A lot of marriages have begun with that. Well, if this doesn't work out, I'll shuck them and I'll find somebody else. But you know what happens when you have that mindset? When that takes place, the the ingredient of commitment has already become severely compromised. Making it far more likely that there's going to be something experienced in your life which is going to prove to be considered too much to deal with. I can almost guarantee that. So if you're already looking for an escape route when you're making those vows, you're going to find something, I promise you, you will find something to make sure that that escape route is needed. When my wife and I were married 46 years ago, we meant what we vowed to one another. Neither of us thought about looking for a way out. We were sold on being committed to one another, we were sold on it for the future of our entire life together. Now, because of that commitment, we've never had any problems that have made us have second thoughts, have we? Baloney. We've had a great many wonderful experiences together where we had the feel-goods. Those great times together. We've had a lot of those times. Thank God for that. But that hasn't been the only experiences that we've encountered. There have been some times when We have come upon some issues that created some disagreements. And I can tell you that those times did not leave us feeling all warm and fuzzy with one another. In fact, we got one another stirred up all right, but it wasn't in a good way. We had to go to our separate corners to cool down because there were heated disagreements. That mean we no longer loved one another? No. Because you see, we weren't committed to the feel goods. We were committed to one another. It wasn't just about me. It was about her and me. And it has to be to make it work. There has to be a mutual commitment or it won't work, folks. I'm telling you, it won't. But when you become committed to one another like that, and you care about one another, everything changes. The unbearable becomes bearable. The hard times can become endurable. And a lot of times the hard things, the hardships that you experience together will strengthen that bond, will strengthen that union together, and will make you stronger and appreciate and value one another that much more. And that's what God would really like for us to check into a little bit more, I think. is that type of a relationship where it's not about us, but it's about one another. And I want us to pray today and ask God to help us to reevaluate how we assess love in our lives. To help us to have a better concept and a better understanding of what God would have us to experience between our relationships with one another. Let's pray. Dear God, today I thank you so much for your love for us. And God, I know it's such a higher form. It's something I strive for, God, and yet I find myself falling so